Alan Kring Productions, in association with the Emergent Light Studio, presents the Illinois State Collegiate Compendium, Academic Lectures in Business and Economics. This is Business Finance, FIL 240 for Spring Semester 2023. Today, cost of capital. Let's try that again. And I'll go until time for the quiz, and then you'll have a quiz, and then that'll be all we have for the day. And I will thank you. Anything, anything else? Before I start here, let's unmute. Good. Have a look at the uh, street now and see what's going on. The markets are in kind of a fussy mood. There was an announcement by, a surprise announcement by OPEC over the weekend that it was going to raise the, uh, or cut production of oil, which will of course send the prices of gasoline and other oil, uh, hydrocarbon products up. And so that kind of, it kind of cooled off any enthusiasm the market had. Although it's, if you notice, the Dow, the big, uh, huge companies of the earth, are up almost a full percent with an hour left in trading. And the S&P 500 has just been kind of flopping around. It's managing to get some wind in its sails, and it's now up about a little less than a quarter of a percent. The NASDAQ companies, sensitive to uh, transportation costs and all that, is taking a bit of a beating today, down 0.60%. By no means is this a bad day, and certainly not a good day. It's sort of an all over the place day, but there's no dramatic direction of the market. It's more of a wait and see. Now, if you look at crude oil, it has cleared into a new band. It was in the 72 to 79. Now it's in the low 80s, and it's been crawling upward through the day. Although I don't know that it's going to be uh, anything catastrophically up. Uh, it's, the reaction is a little bit tamed. Generally speaking, when the oil producing and exporting countries, OPEC plus some others, announces something like this, what they're doing is seeking higher oil prices, make more money. The problem has always been for a coalition like OPEC, once those prices get up there, then countries start to cheat. Well, geez, these prices are high, let's increase our production to get more uh, revenue. And then the bigger countries see this and they follow suit and the whole oil production uh, cut agreement collapses. And that'll be the case here. It won't last long before you see them quietly starting to crank production back up again. So it's not much of a sweat for now. Gold had a little bit of a charge up today. Uh, just the gold bugs see an opportunity to get worried about the end of the world, but it's nothing spectacular uh, at all. Silver's down. Now, the euro against the dollar. It's right now a euro cost just under a dollar nine. And it's having a hard time at that dollar nine level. It's like 
a neckline and the dollar doesn't want to weaken much more than where it is now. If you look at it, it's been pushing upward, but that 109, if I look at like, for example, the one month, you see how it's, it's been having this peak right here. And it doesn't seem to want to break that 109 neckline. So that's good news for the dollar. The, it won't weak, It doesn't look like it's going to weaken much more than where it is now. If it does, then all bets are off. But it looks like it's going to have another cap right here at that 109 level. And then it's going to back uh, chicken out and go back down again. So yay for the dollar and all that good stuff. Now coming back over here. Uh, that's crude. The, uh, the bonds. The benchmark 10-year, the uh, yield has dropped. Prices are, uh, that means prices have gone up. So the prices are going up because there's buying of bonds. And that's probably, most more than anything else, it's just there's such a weak activity in the uh, equities, stocks, that there is some re room for uh, some money to be thrown into bonds. Buy the bonds, drive their price up, which drives the yields down. Good news for the economy, lower interest rates, yay. Uh, well, that's interesting. But anyway, London had a surge early, and then it kind of just sort of died out. It had another one, but it finished up about a half a percent, nothing spectacular. And the same was too. Once the excitement had gotten through in Tokyo yes, last night, it kind of drifted and stayed at essentially the same level for the rest of the trading day over there. So the world is sort of in a kind of quiet mood right now, waiting to see what's, the excite what's going to be exciting. Show you something here. Now, do not do th something stupid like I do. This is, oh, I'm doing this for a reason, showing you something interesting here. Marathon, MRO. I've taken a very risky position, and the whole point of this was to grab it as quickly as I could this morning. Look at a five-day. I'll show you what I, what's going on. Right there. That was pre-market. It spiked like that. I caught the spike, and... Uh, I'm going to get out as fast as I can. I won't trade until I won't sell out until tomorrow morning at the bell. But that is the power of information. The OPEC announced, and that caused the price to boom like that. But if you look at it um, now, the one day, you notice that once that information had been absorbed by the market and been properly processed, Really not much movement after that. This is that information, the prices soak up new information very quickly, and then it's not worth really doing much as far as trading on it. If you had bought in anywhere in here today after, well, geez, the, uh, there's information, news came out late la yesterday, and so I'm gonna grab it here in this area. No, you're not, you're not gonna make any money to speak of because the information had already been absorbed in the price. That's the whole point. History is, is completely soaked up as fast as it comes out, no news. So trying to profit off something like this 
uh, it's really not in your best interest to think that a news that's more than a couple of hours old is going to make you a whole lot of money. Yeah, if you had played it when it happened and had the ability to, you would have gotten a really nice profit right here. But if you didn't, then you might as well go on to the next thing and move faster. Because the Wall Street boys and millions of other computers and trusts and brokers and all these other things that invest, they've gotten that news as fast as possible. Right there, see how fast that news whipped in there? When it overshot and dropped a little and then it brought back up, but those are penny ante compared to the news, which was right here. Look how fast news travels and gets into stock prices. Just a little cautionary tale for you as a trader. <laughs> if it's already out there, then it's probably already, the price has already absorbed it. So there's that. Taking that off the table now. This is the first of two lectures on the cost of capital. Now this one's just the lightweight stuff. There is math in this one on Wednesday. However, this is the kind of math that after you kind of get the hang of it, it's not bad to do. I will tell you this, Excel for a lot of the, one thing, Excel does really well in this. But there are some things that are more like, just use your calculator to get these answers. It's almost, it's almost too much of a, too cumbersome to use uh, Excel. But we'll do it both ways, just to, so you see it. Somewhere in your dark past, probably you saw it first in accounting, Now I showed it to you here. This fundamental equation, debt plus equity equals total assets. Nothing spectacular about that whatsoever. What is a little behind the scenes though is that debt and equity each have a cost. Debt and equity each have a cost. And that's kind of important. It's something that is very difficult to teach is to someone who has not had experience in finance. Debt, the cost of debt is obvious. You pay interest, or you pay a coupon, or interest, a coupon on a bond, interest on a loan, and all that, there, that is the cost of it. The nice thing about debt is that it is tax deductible. So the costs are after taxes of debt. Because we get to uh, deduct the interest we've paid before we calculate our taxes in a corporation. That's how it works. That makes debt kind of cheap. And especially if you're in a higher tax bracket. The other thing that makes debt cheap is that debt has a prior claim to cash flow, so it isn't as risky as equity. Now this is the one that is a little bit harder to work on, the cost of equity. Your stockhold, the company corporation stockholders are a cost. In accounting, and in most people's minds, that profit is a win. But in our world, corporations don't own that profit. 
It belongs to their stockholders. In other words, that profit, that uh, is a cost. Because the shareholders are going to expect to get that. You have to give it to them. Either as a dividend, or you have to plow it back into the company to get a return on equity. It's not the corporation's money. It is the shareholders. It is a cost to the company. The opportunity cost of their shareholders. And that's just for your existing shareholders. It's even more expensive if you're trying to attract new shareholders through a public offering. But it is a cost. Unlike you would think in accounting or in everyday life where the profit of a corporation is a plus. It is certainly a plus to some extent, but that becomes a cost from the corporation's point of view. And it is a high cost. The cost of equity, and you'll see these calculations, I'll do some on Wednesday. I mean, it can be amazingly high compared to the cost of debt. The way you can think about it is that the value of the corporation, the owners are the shareholders. And as that value goes up, that cost goes up with it. You, sir, own an ugly car. Yeah, I've seen your car. It's ugly. But, and so, I mean, you drive it around, wow. But what happens if suddenly that car is declared a classic? It's no longer worth $500 in trade. It's worth $50,000. All of a sudden, you're driving around an opportunity cost of $50,000. Every day you have that car, there's $50,000 that you don't have to use for other things. This is the same way it is for, stock, uh, for a corporation. Those shareholders, they own that uh, capital in the retained earnings. So they are your, a cost. <coughs> Now here's the thing about it. The weighted average cost of capital in its simplest form, WACC, the weighted average cost of capital, is going to be the after-tax cost of debt. Whoops. Plus the weight of equity in your capital structure times the cost of equity. Now I'm using a term over here, capital structure. The capital structure of a firm is the combination of debt and equity that comprises total assets. The capital structure of a corporation is the combination of debt and equity that comprises the total assets. The weighted average cost of capital is the combination of debt and equity that comprises the total assets of the corporation. So I could say, well, the capital structure is 20% debt, 80% equity. 
or the capital structure is 60% equity, 40% debt. But all, ad, all capital structure means is what percentage of the total assets is debt and what percentage of the total assets is equity. There's, there's, a, there's a problem here though, interestingly enough. And it, it kind of is a, is a, well, it was a glaring question. And it was brought up first of all, and I think the book brings up these two names, as sort of a show me why this is kind of question that was put out by two uh, industry uh, professionals uh, many years ago. Look, if debt is cheaper than equity, which it is, why would a company ever have equity? Debt is cheaper than equity for two reasons. The first reason is that it's, the interest is tax deductible. Uh, you subtract minus interest expense before you cal calculate your taxes. Equity, I mean, you pay dividends after you've been taxed on what you've made. And even worse than that, when the, if your shareholders get a dividend, they pay a tax on it. Equity is expensive AF. And that's a question. Why in the hell would... Oh, oh, there's another reason debt is cheaper than equity. The debt holders have the prior claim to the cash flows, so their position is safer. So they don't require as much of a return. Again, <coughs> the debt holders have the prior claim to cash flows. So their position is safer than shareholders. So the debt holders aren't going to require as high a return because they're not in, in as much risk. So debt is definitely cheaper than equity. And yet we see most companies have a lot of common stock. And these two um, professionals, academic and industry experts, Modigliani and Miller, I think they bring their names up in the book, uh, but... They said this, okay, if debt is cheaper than equity, why do we see equity? What would possibly explain that? Putting it in a, putting it in a graph, putting it in a graph. Suppose that on the vertical axis you have the weighted average cost of capital. Now remember, the WAC is your percent of debt times the after-tax cost of debt. Plus the percent of equity times the cost of equity. Okay, on this horizontal axis, let's call this the percent of debt. And of course, one minus that would be the percent of equity. Okay, 0% debt, let's say here's 100% debt. And conversely, that would be 100% equity over here and 0% equity over there. Here's what, here's what they were saying graphically. If you do have no debt, WD is zero, 
then your weighted average cost of capital is 100% times the, re uh, the return on equity, the cost of equity, R sub E. So we know that at 0% debt, your weighted average cost of capital is just your cost of equity. But on the other hand, if you have no equity, 100% debt, then you have uh, the weight of debt, 100% times after tax cost of debt, which should be cheaper, a lot cheaper. So in other words, the cost of capital should be a straight down stroke line. If you don't have any debt, you pay the cost of equity. If you have 100% debt, you pay the after-tax cost of debt. It should be a straight line down. And that was their question. Why in the hell would there be any company that would <coughs> use any debt, uh, use any equity? If you can get debt cheaper, why would you ever use equity? Well, here's why. And I'll use my own data for my own company. And I think this is last year's. I have a line of credit, a revolving line of credit. A lot of companies do this. You borrow money at before, before the revenue season. And then you use that to build your inventory, replace equipment and all that. And then as your revenue season proceeds, in my case, the spring, the summer, and the early fall, you, you're making money and you pay off the debt. Every year, it's a revolving line of credit. It's done by a lot of companies. Um, auto, some auto dealerships do, do, do it this way. They borrow a pile of money to put cars on their lot, and then as they sell the cars, they pay down their debt through the year. Um, furniture companies. You go and you see the floor plan, all these different furniture things, and uh, they do the same thing. They borrow a pile of money, and then as they sell the furniture, they pay the debt down. Uh, some other retailers do. Boat dealers do it. A lot of them do it. Now, in my case, and this comes from my bank for the last year, up to $5,000 in borrowing, I pay 8.99%. From $5,001 up to $12,000, I pay 12.99%. And then from $12,001 up, I pay 19.99%. In other words, as I borrow more money, the last dollar has a higher cost of debt. It's simple. As, you, as a company borrows more money, that means that it has a bigger interest expense right after operating income, EBIT, earnings before interest and taxes. So as you borrow more money, that interest expense goes up. And if it goes too high, your operating income might not be able to cover it and you're in default. So there's a higher default premium as the debt percent of the company increases. That's why the R sub ATD there isn't a constant. As you put more debt into your capital structure, at first it doesn't do anything. But then the more you put in, suddenly that R sub D starts to go up and up and up to the point where if you're 100% debt, 
you're going to pay a lot. Even though this is zero, this 100%, this thing, RATD, is going to be very high. And so a real weighted average cost of capital curve looks like that curve, not that line. That's why companies don't borrow, don't use debt for their entire capital structure. Because sooner or later, the cost of debt starts turning sour on you because the lenders are going to start bitching. Good example of that was Netflix. When it was an earlier company borrowing 10%, uh, 20% <laughs> of capital structure, well, it was paying attractive interest rates. But then it started borrowing out the butt. Its last borrowing was so much and whacked up the uh, capital, the uh, weighted average, uh, ratcheted up the risk of the company of not being able to pay all that interest and all that debt that the lenders were charging ridiculously high interest rates because there was a higher and higher chance that Netflix couldn't pay what it was. So that was a classic example of where this curve suddenly turned sour on Netflix and started to turn. Look right here. These curves have a bottoming out place. See that place right there? The lowest point on the weighted average cost of capital curve. We have a name for that. We call it the, that place the optimal capital structure. The optimal capital structure. The optimal capital structure is the combination of debt and equity that minimizes the weighted average cost of capital. The optimal capital structure is the combination of debt and equity that minimizes the weighted average cost of capital. The optimal capital structure is the combination of debt and equity that minimizes the weighted average cost of capital. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, here's the interesting thing. This, uh, co companies bust their butts to have, to have the optimal capital structure. The combination percent of debt, percent of equity, that is the lowest whack. However, it doesn't stay there. Think about this. Suppose a company is profitable. It's making money. So money is flowing into retained earnings, which is an, which is an equity account. That would mean that the curve in a profitable company is going to naturally drift toward lower percent of debt because the percent of equity is going up because retained earnings are going up. On, uh, another thing that could happen, debt is only for a certain amount of time, so when a company pays off its debt, that naturally lowers the percent of debt and so, again, you're off your optimal capital structure. On the other hand, a company can borrow a bunch of money just real quick to get money in, uh, capital in, I should say, 
and that could move the debt percent out this way. Again, moving it off the optimal. As a matter of fact, I saw it in a prospectus a few years ago. This company was selling stock. It was a public company. It was just doing a seasoned offering of stock. And right in the prospectus it said, we're selling this stock to uh, re-achieve uh, re our optimal capital structure. They didn't need the capital, but they needed to issue stock because their percent of debt was too high. So they, uh, so they issued the stock just to move to the right, uh, I'm sorry, to the left there on the uh, weighted average cost of capital curve. And companies are dead serious about this. You'll see in a subsequent lecture uh, how important and how this drives capital budgeting. You can't just, oh, we'll finance this project with debt, or we'll sell stock to finance this project. They can't do it that way because if they did, it would throw their weighted average, it would throw them off the bottom of their weighted average cost of capital curve. That's all there is to it with that. Now, one thing, the question is, do all companies have the same shape of the curve? The answer is no. And it's actually kind of industry driven. We'll see some industries uh, where the WAC curve is bottoms out very, at a very low level of debt and then starts to whip back up. And then we'll see some where it's like, like a 50-50, 50% debt, 50% equity is where you find the lowest point on the wetted average cost of capital. And then there are some where the WAC curve just keeps dropping to very low levels. Uh, you know, 90% debt before it bottoms out. And uh, now the companies within an industry, it can vary, but not much. Uh, it's very industry specific. As a matter of fact, in my own industry, uh, production and sale of uh, artwork, it's that first one clear over there on the left. We, we bottom out at low levels of debt before it starts to get very expensive. And as you saw, if I borrow more than about 12 grand, my, weighted, my debt cost goes to 19, well, 20%. So, and that's not that unusual in my business. So most of us have very low levels of debt simply because debt gets very expensive very quickly if you borrow more than a little bit. But in other industries, my God, they're like 90% leveraged. And this is, as a matter of fact, I'm going to even show you, I promised you, and I will do this, that I can show you how to become millionaires. And I'm not even joking about this. This is how a lot of people do it. In the industry where this happens, it is your optimal capital structure is that one on the right very high leverage, high level of debt, percent-wise. 90% is not unusual in that business. And of course, that's risky as hell, but that's, guess what? That's how you become a millionaire in maybe five years, is through doing that. 
and hoping that you don't trip along the way. But that, there, there's that. Let me. Now, if you're looking for the panic button on equations and all of that, don't freak out. It's actually pretty easy to do this. Suppose that a company has debt that's running at 6%, and its tax bracket is 21%. <coughs> And its cost of equity is, let's say, 15%. I'm sorry, it's, uh, it's, cost. it's cost of equity. And let's say that this company is 40% uh, debt and 60% equity. Weight of debt is 40%, weight of equity is 60%. The whack equation isn't hard. All you do is you say, okay, the weighted average cost of capital, WACC, is going to equal 0.40 times 6% times 1 minus the tax bracket. That's the after-tax part because you get to deduct your interest expense plus the weight of equity times the cost of equity. That's all there is to the WAC equation. And as you can see, by this, well, from this example, I'm showing you that debt is really cheaper than equity until you start borrowing too much. And if you just pound this out real quick here, uh, you'd have 0.4 times 6% times 1 minus 0.21, close the parentheses, that's the weight of debt times the after-tax cost of debt, plus the weight of equity, 0.6, times the cost of equity, 15%. So 10.8, about 10.896, your weighted average cost of capital Ten point eight nine six percent. Now, yeah. The percents, the costs. I always just do those at percent. Everything else decimal. It's sort of like remember the cap M. All I used were percents to get the uh, expected return to a portfolio or a stock. I mean, it's that same thing. You have to use decimals for the mathy part, but the percent, the costs themselves, I just use percents because then I get my answer out as a percent. Now, whether or not that's the optimal capital structure, I couldn't tell you. I'd actually have to see the company's data to see what happened if they brought the weight of debt down to 30% which would make the weight of equity 70%. I'd have to vary those to see where the bottoming out point was. But this is a weighted average cost of capital. And how important is it? It is really important because a lot of companies, not particularly correctly, 
but they use the weighted average cost of capital for their discount rate for, for their present values. That's how important it is for them to know it, aside from the fact they have to know if they're at the bottom or not. And there's some fancy math, you won't have to do that. But that's the setup. Now the only thing on Wednesday is the uh, figure out what these R sub D, A, T, and R sub E, how you get those. And that's the subject of Wednesday's lecture. But for now, that's all I have for you today. You have a quiz to take. And after that, I thank you.